everybody's going through the same rubbish, same issues, same bad thoughts, and actually the way it comes across sometimes is not necessarily what you've done, it's just they're having a bad day. Welcome to my show and uh, here we have a guest today, this is Lee Adams and he's been an IT consultant in highly stressful jobs for over 25 years and he's suffered terrible anxiety and panic attacks and it wasn't until his second wife said that she wanted to leave him that he realised the real importance of life itself and so welcome Lee, we're going to hear your story today. Hi. So do you want to start by telling us a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. So I think, like I said, I'd, I've been an IT consultant for, for quite a long time. I was a, it generally brings up a lot of stress and anxiety depending upon the, the workload that you've got. But also I think kind of where the stress and anxiety came with me, and I think we we discussed this in introduction before, was when, when you start to have responsibilities in life, I think when we're all in our teens, our 20s, and we think we've got responsibility, we don't really realise what responsibility responsibility we have until we start having little ones that we've got to look after and our lives change dramatically as a result of that so I think that there's more pressure on you you know to be able to bring in a household income remain employed to to get pay rises for holidays to pay for nursery fees to to lots of other sorts of things really and then I think when, when it really started for me was a, a chap at work unfortunately killed himself and, and was mm-hmm. found at Thames and that that kind of brought quite a lot of undue stress at work, you know, questioning around, you know, were we doing the right thing? Did we support him enough? Were we, you know, able to prevent it if at all possible? So we had to put adaptive processes in place to make sure we looked after the team a little bit more and and protected them in the workload. But as a result of that, I also had my first son who had colic. So he, he screamed everywhere, basically. And unfortunately, people haven't got the patience with you. So people think of a baby screaming, you're not looking after it properly. And, you know, comments, considerations, people interrupting, even parents and friends and family. When actually, if you moved him, he would scream. If if you tried to cuddle him, he would scream. He just screamed, basically. So you, you couldn't really calm him down. So unfortunately, at the time, my, my first wife started drinking as a result of that. And I think it was kind of through choice more so than it was anything else. And probably a little bit of postnatal depression. But what it meant was... I was returning home from work, looking after the kids, up to them all through the night and and making sure that they were okay. And and it just isn't sustainable. So I kind of had a breakdown at that point, I think. And we also had a second child on the way. And and that kind of alleviated the strain a little bit because the two kids played with each other. But there was still a massive amount of of issues with that. And unfortunately, uh, my first wife just kept on drinking and drinking. And I think it was more by choice because she could stop for periods of time, but then she would start again. But she just wasn't very happy. And and I think, you know, even to this day, unfortunately, she's never found any of that happiness. So it it, it kind of broke us up realistically at the end of the day. And, and the, the kids were kind of my life, but unfortunately, I think kids generally stay with the mums and, you know, dad, I moved, I think, to to be with them. And yeah. the week before I moved to be with them, she moved them to Oxford without telling me, but 
by that point, because of the stress and anxiety, I'd developed a driving fear. So I had a panic attack on a on a dual carriageway and kind of lorries were, were beeping me and everything. And from that point, I couldn't drive on a dual carriageway anymore. And I think it was a an embedded thought, an issue that just wouldn't go away. So that, that distance meant that I just didn't get to see my kids and unless they kind of came to see me. Yeah. So how with with them that, you know, how was your anxiety building with all those different things, you know, so so work and children and, you know, your first wife and her her issues? How was your anxiety showing up for you? Uh, So I think for me, it was a little bit different because I started feeling really dizzy. And for instance, I worked in a high rise building and and it was all glass from ceiling to floor. Mm -hmm. And when I sat in the meeting rooms, if I had my back to the window, I felt like I was going to fall backwards through the window. So I had this constant panic all the time and then when I got into the car it actually felt like I was going to fall out the car when I went around the corner so for me it just made a massive imbalance in my mind that really just overthrowed you with with fear to be honest I I didn't suffer so much from the heartbeat and anxiety and uh, and the bad breaths for me it was more mental and the fact that I just couldn't cope and then I started having strange unimaginative thoughts and things and you know ludicrous stuff that that comes into your mind when you get in those states so I just become unresponsive really to be honest to some of the to the majority of things so I did have to go on medication at that point and and take some time off just to kind of rebalance myself and and get over that period mm-hmm. and how did the medication work for you so I think the medication was good but only from the perspective that I'm quite a forward thinking positive person so I wouldn't use it to as, as an ongoing thing. So I always had a plan, okay, get yourself back feeling good. So mm-hmm. use medication to to stop that, that muddling feeling, but then have a plan to come off it as quickly as it could. Because again, you know, the medication might never take the problem away. It just stops you from thinking too much about that problem and gives you a bit of clarity. But I think you need the two things to work hand in hand yes. in order to, to move forward so yeah medication sometimes um can be seen as stopping you going any further down um so it's it sort of puts the the brakes on for you to then start climbing back out as such in a a sort of metaphorical way so yeah absolutely Yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah so so yeah that that was when it all started and then i met someone else and i got remarried and kind of we we said that we weren't going to have children. That 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 was the the kind of agreement, and on the basis that I didn't want to go through what I went through in the first place, and I felt pretty bad really that I'd been let down. You know, my first wife was my childhood sweetheart. I thought we'd cracked it, and you know, had kids, and we're going to live happily ever after, and all that. So this time, I said no to children. But she decided that she wanted a child and, you know, at the end of the day, it was probably unreasonable for me to think that she probably wouldn't. So we had our daughter, but I think my my second wife was very much into horses and I think rather than her 
seeing my daughter come along and the horses take a background, she went the opposite way and actually the horses took the foreground and she didn't look after my daughter as much, which left the dependency on me. And I was working, I think, 70 hours a week away in London. I've been made redundant for nine months after an 18-year job. So I was under quite a lot of pressure anyway, but then I'd come back and walk through the door and, you know, daughter thrown out your usual stuff. They've been looking after them all week and want to go out on the horses. And, you know, it, it was difficult. And I think with me working away, she just said, well, I don't really need you here because I'm looking after her during the week anyway. Why don't you just go and work in London and, and I'll keep the house? And of course, I wasn't going to do that. But again, you know, it was the dream house. It was the dream again with the child. And then she just turned around and said, I don't want it anymore. And it was a really strange thing, to be honest. And even if I discuss it with people, it's very strange because she never spoke to me. She never told me. She never said what was wrong. She just said I was a great husband and a great father, but she didn't want to be with me. And I think what it was, I'd, her first horse she had, I, I had it put to sleep and she couldn't cope with that because I mean, it's a very stressful situation, you know, being and seeing the horses actually go through that pain. And then I sold my car to buy her another horse so that she had one to ride straight away. But then later on, she bought another horse and she didn't see the benefit of her old horse. So she'd been speaking to her friends who were all farmy and the horse had a little bit for limp and she said, well, we should put it out of its misery and, you know, kind of have it put down. Will you do it? And I said, no, I'm not doing it. I said, there's nothing wrong with her. I said, she, she's 13 years old and she's got a limp. And she just refused to to see the sense in it. So she went and had to put down when I wasn't there. And from that point, that's where she just decided she didn't want me in the relationship anymore. So, yeah, it was very strange. And my daughter was the apple of my eye. She still is now. She's very much a, a daddy's girl. But I think rather than going into the complications of whys and therefores, I looked at what... I thought I'd done wrong and, and she had a point. It wasn't all down to her, you know. I probably looked after her a lot in a lot of ways, but then as she became grumpy and upset with you all the time, you tend to back off rather than try and make it better because some people will allow you to make it better and others won't. And and she was just one of those stubborn people, made a decision and it was over. So I, I think, think I think you do get you know, relationships can go like that, can't they? They, you know, there's a, if things are festering under the surface, they end up so big that there's no going back. There's no fixing of them. So. No, exactly. And I think you both have to want to, to be honest. And, and if it isn't solid enough, it's never going to work. I think I'd, I probably married her because she helped me get through a very difficult time and she supported me, not in the sense that she supported me through talking and helping me, but she supported me by not ever mentioning it because she didn't, she couldn't stand the thought of me being married before. And she found it very difficult really to build a relationship with my kids. In fact, she probably got quite jealous when they came to stay because my kids follow me around everywhere. The, the, unfortunately, wives don't get a look in when the kids are around because <laughs> yeah. they, 
they don't see me so they want to spend every waking moment with me as a as a result of that and it's very difficult for people to be pushed out even for a short period of time and and i think that took its toll in the yeah. end i think rejection is difficult for everyone isn't it and and it's it's about how you label that situation and and what it um what meaning you put on it because if you can uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm divorced and therefore I, I had sort of partners who, who had to, you know, deal with my children and, and sometimes my children would, would take priority, you know, rightly so. And, you know, sometimes that was seen as a, a positive and the right thing to do. And other times it just, uh, it was you know, treading on too many toes and it, it became incredibly difficult. Um, and I've had it the other way around where I've had to deal with, you know, a partner's children. And actually, to be honest, the children are the easy bit. It's the ex-wives that used to, you know, that caused me the problems. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so how was, uh, how was your anxiety showing up then with, you know, that whole idea of just, you know, your, your, your second wife saying enough is enough. This is it. Yeah. So what actually happened was that uh, I did, when I was made redundant for the nine months, I, I got a, a new job and like I say, they sent me down to London on day one and I hadn't traveled for a while. So my anxiety was quite high anyway, but they threw me straight in front of the customer with a 25 million pound deliverable. And I had to employ 45 people to do that under quite a lot of pressure. The customer was not particularly nice. So we had to build good relationships with them. So. After about 18 months, a new lady came on the account and she was like, I want to prove who I am and so on. And you're not doing a good job, so I'm going to get rid of you. So I had a conversation with her and I kind of left there and told her there was no way I was going to put up with her attitude. And that's what I came home to tell my wife was, you know, I've been working 18 months. I've been doing 70 hours a week. I'm stressed out. I've had enough. They're, they're not treating me right. I just need a couple of weeks off. And she went, well, I don't want you anymore. So. I, kind of, I went to doctors on that day to deal with the work problem who signed me off for the two weeks and then I went back the next day to tell him that my wife didn't want me anymore and, and things were falling apart so he just said I'm going to write you a note for three months and sign me off for three months so I lived in Wales then and every day I just went walking through the hills the mountains and and kind of just saw my daughter I organized for my wife to move to the village and buy a new home so she could move out quite quickly really so it wasn't sat around festering and I think during those times that I was walking I just I realized that life really is down to interpretation and learning and experience. And to be honest, you know, being divorced the first time was, was so bad, I was never going to go through that experience again. So it was kind of a lot easier. You know, we did the divorce online. We talked to each other sensibly and, and we sorted it out properly. And I think... What I realized was the majority of things that had happened was I'd probably caused myself. So, you know, I was going to work and, and getting annoyed going home to my wife and, you know, she getting on my nerves and can't do anything right, this, that and the other. And I think I made this complete picture that actually probably came across to her that I didn't love her anymore. So I think through having the time to think about what I was turning into, I was probably turning into a not so nice person myself and probably not realizing that 
I got what I asked for at the end of the day because I got there. Well, if she's not going to be fun, why doesn't she just leave me? And she did. So yeah. questioning myself about that, I couldn't really argue with what I was asking is what I got at the end of the Absolutely. day. Absolutely. And actually, you know, taking ownership is a really big step, isn't it? I mean, we all, we all tend to sort of blame other people. And when we we own own our own part in it, uh, things you know it's not necessarily a nice thing to do. It's not a pleasant experience to sort of realise that you're you you've been um, part of that problem. But it is it's quite liberating. Yeah, and I agree. It's a massive, massive thing. And from that day forward, I've always taken my side of responsibility and things and i also know you know if i'm having crazy thoughts so are other people so if somebody shouts at me or is rude to me i just think well they're probably just having a bad day and i move on as long as logically i haven't done anything to invoke that I don't take things personally anymore. So, you know, I just actually understand that everybody's going through the same rubbish, same issues, same bad thoughts. And actually the way it comes across sometimes is not necessarily what you've done. It's just they're having a bad day. And if you had a conversation with them at a different time and a different place, it will probably be completely different. So I don't let those thoughts run away with me. Now I make that somebody else's problem by doing as much as I can to make sure that I'm the best me and that I don't blame other people and that I don't blame situations because actually, you know, some things happen and, and you can't change it. But actually, sometimes we are our own worst enemy. And I think, you know, if you're not used to admitting that you're wrong or fessing up to that or apologizing for it, then you're always going to question yourself, you know, and then you're also going to question someone else. But how do you know what anyone else is thinking? You don't. You, you don't. You don't. Absolutely. And the thing is, you know, we're taught from a very young age that we... Um, we shouldn't get things wrong and we shouldn't, you know, it's a bad thing to get things wrong, but actually it's human condition. You know, we're designed to continue learning and on that learning journey, we're, we're going to get things wrong. We can't be perfect at anything when we first start it. So it's inevitable that we're going to fail and get things wrong and mess things up and do silly things. And, and, and therefore, once we start to understand that and accept it, that it's just part of being human, then it that is re releasing, isn't it? It's, it gives you a sense of freedom. Yeah, I mean, I'm married again now, actually, so I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Third time I, lucky, is yeah, that what they say? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and we've been together for years and, you know, we've had some massive ups and downs because my stepdaughter, she was born and unfortunately developed a, a large grafe on her face. So she's got quite a big scar on her face. So she was very subdued when I first met my, my wife. And, and my wife, in fact, didn't want me to be introduced to her because she hasn't got a relationship with her father because of the way that she's been treated. Mm -hmm. So we've got my daughter with my second wife. We've got my two sons with my first wife and we've got my stepdaughter who lives with us. And, you know, we've had some, I wouldn't, yeah, arguments. We haven't talked to each other for days at times early on in the relationship because, <laughs> of, because of the things that have, have come. But we have this bond and this ability to be able to actually, after a couple of days, calm down and talk to each other sensibly and say, you know, this is a learning curve. 
we're not meant to know how to act. I've never lived with kids before because the kids were taken away at a young age from five. I've never lived with a stepdaughter. She's never had to deal with all these things. So how can we possibly agree straight off the bat what is the best thing to do? We, we don't. We take it personally. Absolutely. When we, when we take it personally, then that's where we clash. But and I'm very, very grateful that my new wife is just an amazing person and she understands that we are growing. So she can laugh after we've had an argument. She can laugh about the stupid things. But also, you don't build that that resentment with somebody. And I think as soon as you build a resentment with somebody because you think they're different than you, then it's very difficult to get over and see them back in that light again. So... That's where I think I, I spoke to you before about where experience counts because I I won't have a bad word said about my ex-wife really because I don't believe that that's the right thing to do. Everybody has a reason for doing what they do and whatever that reason is, you will never know and it, it doesn't benefit you. But I think that experience of moving through three different marriages has definitely made me a better husband to my new wife than I ever could have been if I had met her 10, 15 years ago, I think, just because I know what I need to do to make things better. I know when I need to back down and apologize, but when I need to give her a cuddle and when I need to make her feel good and when I know she's just in a bad mood and she's just taking it out on me and not to take it personally. So I think when the stress and the anxiety for me has stopped now that I've had that balance, but I also exercise quite a lot and I found that exercise even if you just use it for an hour or an hour and a half of getting in your own head. And I don't mean, you know, going exercising so hard that you can't think because you're struggling, but even if you went and did an hour stretching in the morning, it's that ability to have a clear mind, clear thoughts, but also looking after your body. You know, I know a lot of people have got aches and pains and stuff. Well, I was like that because you sat still all day and you didn't move around much. But now I'll, I'll probably spend half an hour, 40 minutes stretching in the morning. So when I get up off the chair, I don't feel like a 90-year-old. And yeah. just very little things in life that if you stop yourself having to worry about it and you do something about it, then the stress and the anxiety goes. But I think a lot of people have got all this money problems, kid problems, health problems, and they don't address them. They just sit there and they fester and they get worse and worse. And that might be down to the age old, you know, well, you're meant to stay married for life or whatever. But no, actually, you're meant to be happy. And part of that happiness is not having aches and pains, not being stressed at work, your kids being well-balanced, your marriage being well-balanced. But we stop ourselves because I think we build up so much stress and anxiety that we just snap and frustration takes over. And then yeah, and you're, very, you're right about the list. You know, when we have lists of things, um, especially things that we don't want to do. So oh. all the, you know, the bills that need to be paid and this appointment and that appointment and we must speak to so-and-so and all these things that we have to do. And, and when we put them off, it's almost like, as you say, that that list just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And therefore, the anxiety and the stress and the the when the list gets bigger, then so does the perceived problem. Whereas if we deal with the list, then, you know, tick it off. All those horrible things that you don't want to do, just get them off your list. Decide yeah. Decide that they're either not necessary because it was a nice to do 
or or whatever or if they are absolutely necessary then to get on with it and i heard recently actually about a friend or a friend of a friend who was um has been given notice to leave her property um and she got given notice lots of notice um late last year um and she she's just ignoring it she's just and and she's wondering why she's stressed and anxious and um it's because she's not taking action and, and what you said about taking action is so important well i mean it's like you know simple everyday things if you're bothered about something or someone said something or you're not happy about something speak to them about it you know address the situation because i think if if you go away and overthink it yourself, you'll come up with a million different things that somebody <laughs> done and everything else that actually it will just torment you. And by the time you come to talk about it, it's not a true reflection of the conversation. So I think, yeah, absolutely nipping things in the yeah. book straight away is, is, it is something. Yeah, it's interesting how the, the human mind, it's almost as if it has to make sense of something. So if, if there isn't a clear sense you know that that is very very obvious then we come up with all these stories so if somebody said something to us then we you know we create all these different reasons as to why they did it or why it's not acceptable and and as you say you just build this big story of and this big sort of almost like thought storm and and you lose the original issue you it, it gets lost in the the crowd of 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 unhelpful thoughts and you see it with people, especially I've seen it in the workplace where, you know, someone's had an argument one day about, you know, what should be done on a particular topic. And that then festers over the coming weeks. And all of a sudden, they're just not talking to each other at all. Um, because they looked at each other wrong, or they, you know, didn't, you know, did, they made a coffee and they didn't get me one and all these various things. And it's, it's, it's amusing, but it's also very sad. Yeah, and you know, to give you an example, like when I met my new wife, it, it, she didn't have a great relationship towards the end with her husband, hence why, you know, the daughter went taught her really, to be honest. And, you know, that's been, I think, about four years now. And he's desperately trying to get hold of her. But, you know, he took us to court to get... Uh, <clears throat> what you call it, access to her. But that was after two years of not seeing her, which which kind of caused a bit of a storm and stuff. But I've talked to my wife over the years about different things. And not to advocate what he did, but to advocate the fact that she doesn't know how he felt or why he did those things. And that's not giving him an excuse. It's just people sometimes don't realize what they've done or the interpretation of something and i believe until you know the exact facts of something or you're able to talk about them properly you shouldn't really dismiss them because you always have that you know hatred inside of you and when you've got hatred in you it's it's not a nice feeling to have along with jealousy so if you've got those emotions building up all the time they really do add to the stress and anxiety because they get the heart pumping and i think now my wife is actually trying to encourage our stepdaughter to talk to him she's not having much luck at the moment but i think she's realized because she's in a better place now and she knows you know she's loved by me she's she's okay that she can see why he would want to do it so i think if we take our emotions and our fog out of it and and work kind of more 
on facts and things and not worry about it because the impact is, you know, she either talks to him or she doesn't, you know, anything else is not relevant. It doesn't matter whether she inherits his house later on, whether he comes to the wedding. It's not relative at all, but, you know, that's the story, isn't it? Well, what happens yeah. if? What if this and what if that? Well, actually, no, you've, you've got to get over the first hurdle, first and foremost. If you don't get over that, then what's the point worrying yeah. Absolutely. And, and we do that for a lot of things, don't we? Because we, we don't start something because we see the, all the steps and all the things that we need to do to get to a particular point. But if you just take things one step at a time, it's much more manageable. It's in little, little chunks. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'd, after I got made redundant the first time, I worked for this other company, they, they were just rubbish, to be honest. They treated it badly. It was untrue. And despite the fact that what I managed and what I had with the people that were for me was great, the company supporting me was awful. So after uh, my second wife decided to leave me, I decided that was it. I changed my job and everything else. And I took a, a big risk of jump from being full-time to contracting. And then I'd also sold my house. I moved in with my new wife. I took a big risk on that as well and kind of just upped and changed absolutely everything. And then four months into the new contract, my contract ended out the blue, didn't have any money, just booked a £20,000 wedding. And the first thought was, you know, oh my God, what am I going to do? But actually, instead of going down the pan and worrying and stressing. I just picked up the phone to everybody I knew, started networking on LinkedIn. Within a week, I'd got a new contract and then that was working in Italy. I still had this travel issue. So all of a sudden I had to drive to Manchester airport at two o'clock in the morning, get a flight to Milan, get an hour's taxi to the office and work from nine till eight. And it was all fearful stuff for me, absolutely everything that I was fearful of. I had to cope with but when you've got the fact that you've got a 20 grand wedding to aim for you don't want to let your wife down and you've got all these things you need to do you can overcome everything if you've got something to aim for I think and then COVID came didn't it so I came home two weeks just before we were due to get married and COVID came so I missed it by a fraction but then when we got married obviously we got locked down and then my boys decided they wanted to move in with us rather than stay with the mum through lockdown so they were here so <laughs> quite a nice honeymoon really at first to be honest <laughs> but yeah I think that the thing is 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 not to panic and not to have a clear path of what you can do to resolve things and nip it in the bud because as as that anxiety rises, it's really bad. And I think I'll probably give you an example. It's a strange example, but I was at my dad's the other day and uh, I went over with my daughter or she'd stayed over and I went to see him and we were sitting on the sofa and there was a knock on the door and he lives in the middle of nowhere. So we sent my daughter there because we thought it was going to be a salesman or somebody or somebody doing something. And it was actually a young girl who, who was very frightfully upset. And I went to the front door myself and she said, there's somebody lying on the, on the ground. So I walked up the road and there was an older chap. He, he, he was obviously dead from my perspective. I could see that, you know, he wasn't breathing. But it's interesting to see the reactions of people around because obviously the young girl was extremely upset. Another lady was taking control and giving CPR. Other people were running around panicking, trying to find out whether to find an ambulance. My dad came over and took over the CPR, very relaxed with the lady because she was getting tired. I drove off and got 
one of the defibrillators because the people told them to. But it was interesting in that situation how everybody responds differently because actually the situation is the same for everybody. So it shows you that the way that we think and we feel about things dictates what our actions are going to be. And yeah, you know, the younger, the younger girl's not old enough or experienced enough to know those things. Whereas, you know, my dad and I have come across these things quite a lot with, with family and friends and different things. So you know a bit more about what to do. The other lady was a nurse, so she was trained to do it. You know, so that's where the whole experience, knowing things will be okay, but also having the skills and tools to be able to deal with an event. But then also, if you've never seen something before, you don't know how you're going to react. So why be hard on yourself if you don't like it, you're scared, you're anxious or whatever. It's okay because it's the first time you've done it. So there's an expectation that your body is going to go, oh my God, what on earth is going on? Or your mind's going to go, I can't do this or I can't do that. But that's where it triggers that real that real scariness in people, I think, because we're dealing with things that we've never done before. And I think it's the the thought process leading up to that, isn't it? So Yeah, and I think that you know, you're right in that some people do panic and some others are, are very calm in that situation. And and where somebody might be calm in one situation, they might panic in another. And we really I used to teach first aid and we would have various people come for the courses and a lot of it was first aid at work mainly. So people were coming from workplaces and they'd been nominated to come on the training. And you know, some of them had didn't really want to be there, which never helped, but they some of them really sort of struggled with the idea of saving a life. You know, they had these understandings or belief systems or just you know, experiences or whatever it was, there was something that was limiting them in that. And others didn't like the sight of blood. So even when we were using fake blood or showing photos, you know, they were, they were sort of going this sort of awful shade of gray. And, um, you know, we, we sort of explained that they probably weren't the ideal people to be, you know, workplace first aiders if, if they were getting a little bit gray when they were looking at a, a photo of a cut. So, um, yeah, it, it, the, we, just don't know, do we, what each individual person has so many um, experiences, belief systems, um, things they've been exposed to, and how we all interpret situations and how they, what they mean to us is, is so vast that we, we can't predict, and we think we can. We think we can predict people, but we, we can't. Uh, and, and you know, I, I, I see everything holistically, really. So mm. I, 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 I try and look at the big picture. And I always see, you know, when your baby, someone will give you a dummy or a comforter, you have that taken off you, you know, then you go to big school and you're on your own because you're separated from your friends. Then you go to university and you don't know anybody. And then you go to work and, you know, you're stripped of all those comforts and all those things that you're used to all the way along through your life. And, you know, when you're a kid, most of the stories are horror stories, aren't they? You're trip trapping over my bridge. It's not a surprise people are anxious and scared. <laughs> yeah, it's true. At a young age, you know, yeah. we're, we're told scary things. We're told by the media, you know, you can't go out because there's sex offenders about and all sorts of things, which we didn't have when we were kids. And there's all this big wrap around things that people are scared before they've even actually done it just because they've heard of somebody 
that has been in that situation. And I think our minds, you know, we take in billions of thoughts a minute. And I think, you know, us talking to each other right now, we think that's the only thing we're taking in, but we're not. Our minds are still looking at the surroundings out the side of our minds, looking around the room, thinking yeah. about a billion other things. And I think people forget that. This, the tremendous amount of work that your brain does, it sees and looks for fear everywhere, despite the fact you're just having a conversation, which, you know, I think some of the things that people might ask is that welling feeling when you start feeling that uncomfortableness, you know, even when you're in a situation or you walk into a supermarket or whatever it is. And, you know, I tried everything. I tried cranial osteopathy because I thought there was something wrong with me. <laughs> I've tried hypnosis. I've tried every single thing to try and calm that stuff down. And there was only two things that worked. One of them was I had a smooth stone in my pocket that I used to rub. And when it felt like that, I could just rub it a little bit and say, actually, it'll be okay. Don't worry. It'll stop in a minute because the anxiety does rise. And I know people think, you know, when that you've got to do the fight or flight but actually it does stop at some point but the problem is is it pushes you so far that you don't know where your tipping point is which means if you're not doing it regularly enough and it's just every three months you feel like that you're not hitting the tipping point and knowing it's going to stop you're just constantly in that fear mm -hmm. and the other thing is the exercise and like I said if there's something on your mind deal with it and don't don't play around with anything and be kind to people. Do as much as you can to help everybody you possibly can and be polite and grateful. And if you do something wrong, apologize, because then you can turn around and you can honestly say, well, I, I haven't got any anxiety because I'm not actually doing anything wrong. And if I have, you can relinquish yourself of that that thought and that's where I've really found the things of of help but sprays all sorts of other different stuff it it's one of those placebo things if it works for you then it's probably just that your brain has clicked at the same time that you've you've taken it but it really is down to that base level of not stressing about stuff and having a plan you know if you're not happy in your job then change it you know, and if something is causing you so much pain every single day, then it's not worth it because yeah. we aren't meant to be happy. And I think when you find that happiness, the happiness balance really does get rid of the stress and the anxiety. And I know people will say it's okay for you, you know, you've got a nice house, this, that, and the other, and you've got a really good job, but I've got no qualifications. And I think the way that I've done well in life is by helping other people because then they help you. And I think, you know, if you become insular and you take all your problems on yourself, then the stress and the anxiety will build, you know, and you yeah. will and you will be frustrated and you will shout at people and the kids will annoy you. It just yeah. is one of those things, isn't it, that we don't help ourselves in that situation. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's 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 important to remember that anxiety is a natural, natural thing. It's our little alarm clock. You know, it's it's our reminder, internal reminder that we've got a list to do or we've got to remember the appointment or, you know, the, the normal sort of everyday things. And and so anxiety in itself is can be really helpful. It's when it gets out of control that's its problem, where it's it becomes that overwhelming need. But what's quite interesting is if you if you really think about how it feels um when anxiety starts, that sort of um 
especially if you're going to go and do something like uh, public speaking or and, and you get really sort of nervous and anxious with that. If you reframe that and consider what it's like to feel excited, and actually they're very similar, the body's response for excitement is almost identical to the body's response for, you know, fear, anxiety, you know, at, in the beginning stages. And so if we reframe it, and instead of saying, I'm nervous, I'm anxious, we say, I'm excited, then, you know, our, our brain does listen, you know, and it's when we, when we, it's about the interpretation, isn't it? It's about interpreting those fears, those, all those feelings, and they're all neutral until we give them meaning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, you hear, hear it a lot with people because they say, you know, I knew that was going to happen, but that's because on the way to doing something, they're saying, I know this is going to go wrong, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, this is going to happen. And inevitably it does because, you know, you framed it in that way and it is going to happen and that can be partly due to your own behavior as well but if you go into things with a clear mind and whatever happens happens then you're much more able to deal with it at yes. that point rather than you know pre-framing all the problems you're going to have when you actually do something because the likelihood is one of those things will happen but if you're in a good place you're a hundred times better at dealing with it than you are if you framed it in a in a bad way and I think that's where age experience and everything comes into play a little bit more because you do come across more and I, I always say you know the average people in this country are probably brought up with the same friends in the same school in the same places they haven't really got that worldly experience and education of different people different things different jobs different marriages you know that that experience to know that actually well sometimes it might might work out like that but actually on another day it won't work out like that and if you balance it over you know metrics based rules well out of 10 you're never going to get 10 out of 10 times the same result you're going to get one out of 10 or two out of 10 but fundamentally you're always going to end up with a better result than a bad result and i think people just don't don't see those things in a logical way and that's because the fear just takes over and your your results about the presentations is is exactly right because uh, I interview a lot of people and it's just unbelievable how many people just can't even talk to you or look you in the eye or you know anything else because they've probably got this fear and I think as part of the interview process we try to make them feel relaxed and everything else but there's that fundamental welling of people that comes up that really does stop them from doing something when actually if you take the approach does it really matter if you get the job you may want it but does it matter it doesn't because then you just go on to the next one and i think the law of attraction or whatever you call it or whatever people believe in you know i've had plenty of occasions whereby something has not happened but i've moved forward and a day a couple of days later something bigger better has actually come along i think it's just people dwell on that massive big thing so much yeah. that they miss that real big opportunity that's waiting for them because they're stuck in this bit when if you just go okay tomorrow's a better day and i know it's a cliche and people think you know it's easy to say this stuff but 
it is true. If you wake up the next day and do what you did before, but improve on it and do better, then you're always going to get the result that you want. It's absolutely, and and you know we can choose we can choose our beliefs. So if you know if if somebody is sort of saying, well, everything goes wrong, nothing ever goes right for me, well, change the belief. Ex- have your expectation that things will go right. It's a, it's something that I've I've always said. You know, um, even through some really difficult times, I've had this belief that it will work out in the end. You know, this is tough at the moment, but I know it will work out in the end. I have this sort of faith that it will, and it always has. It hasn't. I've never really known how it's going to work out, but it it always you know you always come back to you know living comfortably and doing okay and all the things that really matter fall back into place and it's a different job or i've lived in different countries and so it's it's seeing opportunity it's it's sort of saying okay well that door's closed and the the one door closes another one opens again that's a cliche but it can be true but you've got to look for it you've got to be you've got to have your eyes open to see the opportunity yeah and i see that a lot at the moment with with all the covid so many people i speak to are just waiting for things to go back the way they were and it's almost as if they've put their lives on hold for two years because they want it how it was well you know the thing is it's not going to be like it was ever Uh, life doesn't work that way we constantly evolve don't we so of course yeah and you know i see it quite a lot with people that are either unhappy in the relationships or are single you know they they either want to meet somebody or or they want the relationship to change but they don't actively do anything about it and you know things don't magically just change things take hard work and i i laugh at my stepdaughter at the minute actually because she eats a salad for a couple of days and then i see the scales disappear out the bathroom and she's weighing herself every every two days going but i've only lost a pound and it's like yeah but you know you're doing biology the psychology of the calories in calories out and what you're going to consume and the work you have to do and she'll go and do a workout for half an hour and then she'll go look at me biceps or you know I should, have, I should have lost half a pound this week and and it takes a, a lot more effort than that but i think it's just that consistency of approach isn't it and it's the consistency of consistently knowing that you have to put in the effort and then the effort doesn't become the effort anymore like i get up and go to gym of course past five in the morning people think i'm crazy but i do it because i like to spend time with my wife in the evening and that's uninterrupted and it's a nice part of the day for me to do that but actually when i started doing it i hated it i absolutely hated it and now it's my solace it's what i do to make myself feel better but you have to break that barrier of something might not feel good for you but give it a chance and then see where it leads you to before you before you make your mind up and then once it becomes a routine you don't really question yourself and you don't have that well i can't be bothered going to gym i'm going to sit down and eat a bag of crisps because you just get up and you set your alarm and you just go to the gym and i think it's that transition between you know not doing things consistently doing it to then actually just being able to do it without thinking about it like it yeah. mom's great at it aren't they because you've got kids running around you've got to look after them you've got no choice yeah. you're, not, yeah. you're not feeling well they're throwing up everything and you've got it you've got to sort them out so i think mums are a, a great real role model and mentor really to be honest because you do a lot of the things you really don't want to do 
Um, that's what life is all about, isn't it? It's, it's about doing all the things that you don't want to do so that you actually have time to do the things you do want to do. And, yeah. you know, expectations is, is one of those things that I think we have. I, I think it was uh, Tony Robbins said, you know, you, you overestimate what you can do in a week or a month and you underestimate what you can do in a year because we have this weird sense of we want things to happen now you know as you say your 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 stepdaughter you know does a half hour workout and wants to see her her muscles super toned and and but if we're consistent with those things every year then that you will see the difference but we you know a lot of people give up before they get that far and you know i'm i'm guilty of that as well you know i start some things and then life takes over and it falls to to one side um but i think part of that is many of us try to focus on too many things at once and we we try and change too much at once and it that's that's um you know doomed to fail really uh, well i mean I, I love the job that i do at the moment but it's taken me you know 25 years to find that you know and, and a lot of hard work to get there and an understanding of what I want to do and how I want to do it. But also, you know, everybody works in different ways. I, you know, what used to cause an argument with me and my second ex-wife, I have to explain it that way every time, don't I, was, you know, she would do the naughty corner with my daughter and consistently tell her off, whereas I would sit my daughter down and ask her what, what the problem was, why she was feeling like that and what was making her act like that. And... I think what I gained from my kids by talking to them is it was just frustration. They had no idea. So I could sit in the car with my daughter. She'd get in the car and I'd be the worst dad on earth for about half an hour. She'd explode and then she'd love me forever. And actually, rather than being sucked into somebody else's story and frustration, I stay on the outside now. And that caused a massive argument with me and my ex because she thought that, you know, punishment was the answer, whereas... I'd, I still to this day, I don't think I've ever shouted at my kids because if I raise my voice, they know that I'm not happy about something. But that understanding on the level of, well, I will let you off with this because you've got no control over it. And I actually believe sometimes frustration stops people having control a bit like when you're drunk really and people say, yeah, I was drunk and I can't remember it. Well, actually, people do that when they're not drunk, when that frustration takes over. And I think if you get sucked into that, then you become reactive. You get all hot-headed. You say a load of stuff you don't mean. And it's easier just to sit on the outskirts, let them spin off wherever it is and say, okay, you know, come and talk to me when, when you're in a better mood or you're feeling a bit better about it, but you know, finish throwing your toys out the pram. And I think that's been a big thing for me as well as not, not arguing with people like you can't argue with because until people see something for themselves, they're not going to see it from your perspective. So you're just wasting your time yeah. and, and we're all human. So if someone argues with you, it's, it's too hard not to argue back. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We all love a good debate. don't we? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, If I extract myself from those environments, I, I don't get as stressed either no. because, it doesn't matter to me what they think or or anything else. What matters is what I think and whether I think I'm doing the right thing and whether, you know, holistically I've taken the right viewpoint. Because again, if there's 10 people looking at a situation, they're going to see it in 10 different ways. And, Absolutely. And it know, takes 
two to have an argument. So if you've got one person who who is able to sort of say, actually, this isn't a good time to take that discussion, and they quietly withdraw, then the argument doesn't take place. And therefore, the the when because when you've got two people that are really heated, we all say things that we don't really mean. And then if you've got two characters that take those things to heart and take them as if they are real and they were meant rather than just, you know, a verbal explosion, verbal diarrhea, as some people call it, you know, yeah. where you're just sort of getting your frustration out with whatever words come come through as such and you're not actually meaning it, um, th that can be so destructive. So actually being able for one person in that partnership to be able to sort of step back and say, okay, I understand that you're feeling something uncomfortable at the moment, you know, let me give you a hug or I'll give you some space or whatever is appropriate and and not actually take that conversation. Yeah. I've, I've had all these things with my new wife. It really is funny because like we started off like that we'd shout at each other and stuff yeah. and be like, I can't give you a hug. I'm too angry with you. At the moment. And so, well, <laughs> what are you angry with me for? I haven't actually done anything. And I think at first I responded really badly to that. And I think that's where, again, experience maturity goes, hold on a minute. What are you actually committing to making this wrong? Not what, what are they doing but what are you doing that is making this situation worse and i think when you can look at it like that and you can go okay you've been an idiot you shouldn't have done that you shouldn't have said that and and you might have been better off doing this i mean some things are, are ridiculous anyway you know the, the the things that come up in relationships are ridiculous and the wants and needs and the passion that you can have it it's just strange it doesn't make sense at times but rather than pull each other together it can drive you apart and i think yeah. that's the same with any relationship if you don't take the time to really understand with each other you know what it is that you need to get out of it to make each other's lives better yeah. and i think when you have that understanding it makes things easier see I, I mean my heart goes out to people with stress and anxiety it really does i really wish i had known what i know now all those yeah. years ago and i probably wouldn't have suffered as much then but i think you know that that clarity of mind being able to think clearly not react and deal with things as they come and stay a bit healthier really is the the key and the bread and butter yeah. to not getting yourself into that position in the first place and if you can see something coming then stop it before yeah. it actually gets there and so so if you could with with your experience this of anxiety and stress if you could give people sort of three main suggestions as to what they might try what would it be the one would be really learn to understand yourself and your capabilities and you as a person because what anybody else thinks of you doesn't matter because you know that's how they've been educated that's how they've been taught to think and it's not relevant so you don't need to live your life based upon what other people think of you your life is for you and it should be dictated by you mm -hmm. i think the second is have always have clarity in mind. Everybody needs an hour a day, whether you meditate, whether you do whatever, but you need to take yourself out of the situation because you won't get clear thoughts when you're in the thick of everything. So if your kids are running around, 
everything else. Set your alarm half an hour earlier before the kids get up or whatever, but do whatever to get a routine where you have a balance of time for yourself and don't ever let anybody take that away from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really, really important. And three years, you know, believe that anybody can be happy. Happiness is an emotion that you create. It's about where you think you are in life and what you create yourself, you know. And I think giving your kids hugs, telling people that you love them, you know, there are no holds barred nowadays. We don't live by the old rules of, you know, it's soppy if you cry or anything like that. It's not. You do what you want to in life to to remain happy. And a lot of that, I think, comes from being honest with yourself, not lying about things, being kind to people, and just generally every day doing more to make yourself a better person, make yourself a better life, and and don't be scared. because Absolutely. Yeah, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So, well, Lee, it's been amazing. It's been a great, great chat. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. That was a quick hour, actually. Your mouth's a bit dry now from all that talking. (laughs) Going to have a well-deserved drink. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was a pleasure, Dawn. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.